This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, our focus returns to Mexico. We'll evaluate the first year of Mexico's new president and look at the impact of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, among other cooperative policies between the U.S. and Mexico. But first, Megan Eckhamel is here with our weekly roundup of news from around Latin America. In Mexico, vigilante groups in Michoacan and Mexican soldiers are clashing in the streets. This week, soldiers shot and killed three civilians, including an 11-year-old girl. Local communities are outraged at the Mexican soldiers. Most small communities support the vigilante groups because they provide some security against drug cartel violence. In the aftermath of the civilian shootings, Self-Defense Force spokesman Istanisloa Beltran shows his support for the vigilantes. Those are the actions the government is undertaking to fight crime. It sides with the people when in reality it's the people who are fighting the crime they are causing. Vigilante groups recently emerged within the past year to quell the violence from the rampant drug cartels. The Knights Templar, the cartel that controls most of the methamphetamine in the United States, has a stronghold in Apatzingán, We'll have more on the security situation in Mexico later in this program. Authorities have arrested seven suspects in Monica Spears' murder, the former Miss Venezuela of 2004. Although authorities made the arrests, they have not filed charges. Four more suspects are still evading capture. Spear was showing her daughter and ex-husband the Venezuelan scenery along a highway last week, when their car broke down. Thieves shot and killed Spear and her ex-husband, but their five-year-old daughter, Maya, survived with a shot in the leg. Two free trade agreements currently under development could have major effects for Latin America. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, would include 12 countries, including the United States, Mexico, Chile, and Peru. The United States and the European Union began negotiating the transatlantic trade and investment partnership in June. Our Rachel Bay listened to a panel of experts discuss the trade plans at the Inter-American Dialogue this week. The so-called mega-agreements could diminish the power of existing Latin American trade groups like the four-state Pacific Alliance or the five-state Mercosur. According to political consultant João Castro Neves, Brazil is already experiencing slow economic growth, and the new partnerships pose an additional threat. Given now the fact that we see a more challenging economic environment globally and the emergence of these new trade initiatives led by the United States, this is beginning to create a concern in Brasilia regarding the opportunity costs of being left behind. Jeff Hornbeck, associate director at the Brazilian public affairs firm Patri, suggested that unlike Brazil, Latin American countries that have free trade agreements with the United States are considering whether the new deals would benefit them. In particular, he said the TPP has the potential to alter the relationship the 
United States has with its largest Latin American trading partner, Mexico. Mexico is looking at the reforms. How are they going to be implemented? How, how significant will they be? I think, like many others, but they have the potential to be hugely significant, particularly in energy, labor, uh, could change the, the, the relationship quite a bit. According to Hornback, the United States imported nearly $280 billion worth of goods from Mexico in 2012. For Latin Pulse, I'm Rachel Bay. Renowned Argentine poet and author Juan Gelman has died at 83 years old. He wrote more than 20 books and was a regular column writer for newspapers. He won the prestigious Cervantes Prize in 2007 for a lifetime of Spanish literary achievement. Gelman was a left-wing activist and guerrilla in Argentina in the 1960s and 70s. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. Mexico's President Enrique Peña Nieto has been in office barely 13 months, but already many experts are crediting his administration with making the biggest changes there in a generation. We analyze these advances, for good or ill, with Duncan Wood via phone line. Wood is the director of the Mexico Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center here in D.C., Here are excerpts from our conversation. I think it's extraordinary what took place uh, during 2013. Uh, The number and the scale of the reforms that were uh, were approved by the Mexican Congress and signed into law by the president, Um, you know, a a large number of which were constitutional reforms. That's something which hasn't really been possible um, at that scale for at least uh, 15 years. Um, we've seen uh, a period of adjustment in the Mexican democratic system since 1997, uh, which is when cohabitation between you know, political parties, um, different political parties in the Congress and the presidency, really began. And that was a period of adjustment where you really had a tough time passing any major reforms. There were some that went through, but uh, the structural reforms, in particular with regards to the economy, that were necessary but politically controversial got uh, got held up during that period. And so it really is remarkable that in 2013, the Peña Nieto government in Mexico was able to push through all of these reforms um, by working with the opposition parties, for the most part, and setting themselves up now for a 2014 and indeed the rest of their mandate when they can really focus on implementing the reforms that were passed last year. Uh, let me go over this list and, and check me if I'm incorrect, but educational reform, energy, telecom, taxes, these are the areas that got dealt with. Yeah, I mean, there's, there was a financial reform in there as well and a political reform. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, was, it, it was a really remarkable, extraordinary year. So many issues that uh, had been identified as being crucial uh, for fixing the Mexican economy and the Mexican system, um, we saw significant progress. I'm not saying that these are cure-alls. I mean, they, they don't fix all of the problems that Mexico faces, but they're definitely a step in the right direction. Of those reforms, which do you think are the most important, and what are the changes we're going to see from that particular reform? Well, I would say that, uh, you know, looking at uh, the, uh, the balance of last year, the most important two reforms are the ones that happened sort of towards the end of the year. And first of all is the energy reform, which many people have written and spoken about over and over again, just simply because that's a paradigm shift in Mexico. The energy reform, which uh, allows uh, private investment directly into the, uh, 
the the oil and gas sector for the first time since the 1930s. Um, it uh, it also shakes up the electricity um, system in Mexico. We're looking at a very very important uh, change that should guarantee Mexican energy security, guarantee the continued flow of uh, of fiscal revenue for the uh, for the government from energy, and should help to. Uh, to lower energy prices for the Mexican public as well, which is a very, very important issue in the country. Mexico still has, by some estimates, around 158 billion barrels of oil equivalent left in the Gulf of Mexico and onshore resources, which is an enormous amount of, uh, of treasure, which, uh, which private firms are anxious to help to exploit, to get that out of the ground, to sell it on to uh, international markets and to the Mexican public. Um, and uh, and pay their taxes and royalties to the Mexican government, um, and so this is uh, this is a very very exciting uh, moment in, in in the energy sector, and we should see very high levels of foreign direct investment in that if the government gets the secondary legislation, the regulation, and the implementation right. Um, the other reform that I would say is is of the biggest importance is the political reform which uh, came through towards the end of the year. Um, which, first of all, centralizes a lot of the, uh, the electoral institutions in Mexico. Um, there used to be that there was an elect a separate electoral institute for each of the states of Mexico, and that's all now going to be uh, consolidated into a national elections in institute. But more importantly than that, I'd say, is that uh, for the first time since the revolution, really, um, Mexico will now allow re-election of uh, uh, of legislators and of uh, municipal presidents, the the the, the national president cannot be re-elected, um, but senators, diputados, um, uh, state-level legislators, and uh, and municipal presidents will be able to be re-elected, and there'll be there'll be there'll be term limits. Um, but uh, but this actually really does is a step in the right direction in terms of increasing accountability. Um, and, in, and building up a, a greater body of expertise, particularly in the Mexican Congress. I see that these two reforms will really have the, the biggest long-term impact on Mexico's future. For those folks who don't track Mexico, the entire Mexican Revolution started over this issue of re-election. And, and so this is a, a crucial, fundamental reform. And as you mentioned, the oil reforms, uh, petroleum reforms, energy reforms come from the 1930s, which was also a big part of Mexican identity during that particular period. So, so these are indeed huge shifts. And because they're huge shifts, we've seen people take to the streets against the energy reforms, protesting also against the educational reforms, uh, teachers unions out in the street. And, and the teachers unions really were the first ones that Pino Nieto took on as, as the new president, weren't they not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there were some uh, uh, some protests against the labor reform, but of course that happened at the end of the uh, the Calderon administration in the uh, the closing months of of 2012. So yeah, the the teachers were the ones who really took to the streets um, and you know occupied the Zocalo for a while, and then they kindly agreed to move their protest over to the uh, the Revolution Monument and have been camped there ever since. What's what I find interesting, however, is that. You know, we, we talk a lot about the protests that have marked Mexico, in particular Mexico City, um, over the past 12 months. And it's been highly disruptive for daily life in the city. I mean, a city that suffers from big traffic problems um, now faces even greater disruption 
as uh, major arteries of the city have been shut down periodically. Uh, and, uh, and the residents of Mexico City are, are, are very unhappy about that. Um, but by the same token, the, the protests themselves have not been massive. There's been lots of them, but they haven't reached the scale that we might have expected. In particular, I think, with regards to the energy reform, we saw at that, the peak, you know, maybe 25,000 people showing up for a, a protest rally uh, uh, called by Andres Manuel López Obrador, a man who used to get you know, hundreds of thousands of people to turn out for his, uh, his meetings and his, uh, his speeches in the Zocalo. So I, I think that the scale of the, uh, of the protest has been a little bit disappointing from the point of those who, who oppose the government's program. However, what we have seen is that the government's popularity, in particular the popularity of the president, has really uh, you know, taken a beating over the past 12 months. What we've seen is that uh, Pe- President Peña Nieto has a, an approval rating in Mexico that's, that has dipped below 50%. Now, that doesn't sound too bad by U.S. standards, but in fact, by, uh, by Mexican standards, that's very, very low. We would expect a president in the, in the early years of his presidency to still have an approval rating up in the 60s, um, you know, maybe 65, 67%. Um, and so this has been a highly controversial uh, reform agenda. Um, and I would say that it has been divisive for Mexican society. Now, there's a way for the government and for the president to turn that around. Um, they need some good news. Uh, and they, in particular, they need, need good news on the economic front and to create a lot more jobs in Mexico so that Mexicans feel more secure about their economic future. And they also need to have some victories in the, uh, the struggle against organized crime, which has been a persistent problem uh, for this government during the first 13 months. Growth last year in Mexico, only 1.3%. And yes, the drug war that has turned huge swaths of the country out of the central government's control uh, is still a big problem there. And uh, they have tried to play it down, but uh, we may not see the numbers of people being killed in the same way as during the Calderon administration, but the latest statistics say that kidnappings are skyrocketing in Mexico. Yeah, so on, on the first point, we have seen a, a, a decline in, uh, in homicides, but the number is still at an unacceptably high rate. I mean, you look at it and, you know, estimates of around 10,000 people dying last year, that's a drop from the um, sort of the worst moments of the Calderon administration. But 10,000 people you know, being killed in violence associated with organized crime is, 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 is very, very unacceptable for, uh, for a country like Mexico, which has traditionally been quite a peaceful country, you know, one of the, the lowest homicide rates um, in Latin America. Uh, and so you know, the, the Mexican people really want that to be sorted out. Second point, I would say, is, as you say, um, you know, the, the extortion, kidnapping rates, other kinds of crime have gone up. And they've begun to affect areas that... Uh, were not affected by them previously. In particular, you know, the residents of Mexico City feel less secure than they did uh, in the past. Um, and, the and this point, is new. Just that, within the last year, we've seen these statistics go up and seen more crime in Mexico City. Yeah, and, and you know, Mexico City I mean, remains a, a, a relatively safe part of the country. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a city where you, know, you feel safe in going out and walking around. Um, at night in most areas, but uh, the problems have grown there. And there's, there's, a, there's a third point which I think is very, very important to, to mention here, which is that those areas of the country which ha- were 
which were proven to be ungovernable um, during the Calderon administration. You know, thinking about Tamaulipas, Michoacan, certain areas of Guerrero. The, the new government or the, the government of Peñeto has really been unable to have an impact on increasing security in those areas. And, you know, just this weekend we saw the, you know, again, news about the problems of violence in Michoacan, um, of vigilante groups. And uh, this seems to be an intractable problem. So the government is announcing a new security strategy today um, for Michoacan. And, you know, the response in the Mexican press is predictably what another security strategy. This is, you know, like the sixth security strategy that we've seen over the past six years. Um, and, and it's the, the second one for this new administration, is it not? It's the second one of this new administration. Yes. I mean, they came in with a security strategy for Michoacan early in the administration. And now they're saying, well, they're going to you know, focus more on police training, for example. The, the military will, will play a role in that. And uh, that's not really what the Mexican uh, uh, public wants to hear. They want to hear about, you know, a concerted uh, government strategy going in there and sorting out the problems once and for all. Thank you so much. Duncan Wood, the director of the Mexico Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center, joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thanks, Rick. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Last week, as this program went online, news reached us of the death of Robert Pastor. He fought cancer for more than three years before he died at the age of 66. Pastor was a colleague of ours here at American University. He was the author or editor of 17 books, many of them covering Latin America and U.S. policy in the region. He also served as National Security Advisor on Latin America and the Caribbean for the administration of President Jimmy Carter. We conducted a series of interviews with Pastor in 2012. To honor his passing, we thought it would be appropriate to replay highlights from those conversations and some outtakes, remixed anew. This conversation begins with Pastor's view of critics of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA. NAFTA became a piñata for pandering pundits and politicians, including uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton uh, in the 2008 election, uh, using it for short-term interest to blame uh, Mexico and NAFTA for problems that have nothing to do with either NAFTA or Mexico, problems in which we share in the responsibility, whether it's drug trafficking and violence in Mexico or whether it's uh, it's uh, immigration-related uh, issues as well. Uh, I think President Obama understood after the election when he became president that he was mistaken uh, in his comments both about NAFTA and about Mexico. I think during this uh, administration, they have moved to try to improve relationships, but, but they're very cautious. They're, they're not terribly productive. He has spent time, but not quality time, uh, in trying to redesign the relationship. Uh, and that's what, what is needed right now. It's clear uh, that, that these incremental steps uh, that he is doing, including uh, summit uh, meetings that uh, w were held uh, on April uh, 3rd 
um, between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, that these are inadequate uh, for addressing the totality of a relationship. Most, most Americans think our most important trading relationship in the world, the most important market for U.S. goods is China. But in fact, we export almost twice as much to Mexico as we do to China. Uh, three times more to Canada than to China. Uh, twice, uh, nine times more to Mexico than to Brazil. Uh, more than that to Mexico than to India. So people in the United States simply don't understand how important our neighbors are to us. They certainly understand how important we are to them. Uh, it amounts to 40% of their gross national product is tied up with trade with the United States. What we need is a change in that relationship. We need to focus on a North American idea. Uh, we need to inculcate into our consciousness just how significant our neighbors are. Uh, if we are going to attain a higher level of competitiveness to compete against East Asia and a higher level of security to deal with problems of terrorism, we need a very different relationship than we have right now. You brought up two very large themes there, immigration and the drug war. Some would argue that the Obama administration has not been engaged enough on those two issues. How do you deal with that in the book, and what are your recommendations on either one of those? An effective strategy for dealing with the drug war and to dealing with immigration, or for that matter, for dealing with infrastructural and transportation problems or environmental problems and labor problems, requires a new way of thinking of our neighbors. Uh, instead of blaming our neighbors for these problems, it requires a recognition not just in rhetoric but in policy of a shared responsibility. I distinguish between rhetoric and policy because this administration has recognized rhetorically that the drug trafficking and violence problem is a shared responsibility of the U.S. and Mexico and recently the Canadian defense minister reiterated that this is a shared responsibility of Canada too. But we haven't translated that into real policy. If we did, we would realize that 80 to 90 percent of all of the assault weapons and high violence uh, weapons that are used by the drug cartels in Mexico are purchased in the United States in gun shops within 50 to 75 miles of the border. Now, if, if that was happening in the reverse direction, if American violent gangs were purchasing assault rifles in Mexico. Do you think we would just simply ask the Mexican government to close those gun shops down? I don't think so. I think we would go over and close them if the Mexicans didn't. The Mexicans have asked the same of the United States. They've simply said, why don't you reapply uh, 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 re the assault weapons ban uh, that had been in force in the United States until 2004, and the United States has ignored it. And those assault weapons are being purchased by the drug cartels in Mexico and killing 50, 40 to 50,000 people uh, in the last six years in Mexico. So if we really had a shared responsibility, we would shut down those gun shops. Uh, we would introduce a series of very specific reforms to make sure those guns didn't get into the hands of the cartels. That's what I mean when I say that you have to change the idea first. You have to really inculcate in our consciousness that North America matters to us, that we need to take hard steps that are politically difficult because of the power of the gun lobby in the United States, 
but not impossible. Uh, if we succeed in understanding that we should treat our neighbors like we want to be treated, and we ask ourselves, how would we react uh, if these guns were coming from Mexico and the United States, then I think we would find the political will to take the kinds of steps that would enhance and balance this relationship. I'm glad you talked about the gun equation because normally on this program we talk a lot about drugs going north and immigrants going north, but not about the guns going south. But on the immigrant question, any thoughts about that and how there can be more engagement on that, even though this sort of illegal immigration is at its 30-year low in the United States, it's still a, a huge political football this particular year, this election year. Well, we have to understand that we have been trying to create a North American market. And to the extent that we succeed, we need to make it seamless. And that would help us economically. But what happens is when you create a North American market for goods, labor mobility increases as well. And that's what's happened. So we need to look at labor mobility in the context of a North American market. We need to get preference to our two neighbors. We need to treat them a little bit differently because the migration from Mexico uh, involves a very substantial amount of undocumented migration. And that's because of the income gap between Mexico and its northern neighbors. We need to do something about the income gap if we're going to do it. So we need a comprehensive approach to labor mobility in North America that recognizes the income gap but attacks that at one of the, as one of the problems to be dealt with within the context of a new North American idea. What can we expect to see at this upcoming hemispheric summit? It will be a sixth summit of the Americas that will be held in Cartagena, Colombia on April 13th and 14th involving 34 leaders, democratically elected leaders of the Americas. They have a very wide agenda that includes everything from infrastructure and poverty and inequality uh, to crime and public security and education, response to national di uh, natural disasters as well. I think it's an opportunity for the leaders of the Americas to hear from each other and learn what's happening and to propose new ways to enhance cooperation and more effective uh, uh, responses to uh, international challenges in the Americas. I'm not sure we're going to see or hear any very specific accomplishment, but I think that it's a very valuable forum. There's going to be a lot of folks watching what happens between the U.S. and Venezuela at this particular summit. I guess there's even some speculation, will Hugo Chavez be healthy enough to be at the summit? It looks like he might be now, but who knows what will happen. So um, what should we look for in that particular signal of what might happen between Obama and Chavez? Hugo Chavez is a very polarizing figure, both in Venezuela and in the Americas. And indeed, because of the oil money of Venezuela, he's been able to establish a rival organization, ALBA, uh, in which several of his allies, Nicaragua, um, uh, Ecuador, uh, 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 and uh, a few uh, Caribbean countries have expressed interest in allying with that. Um, uh, Hugo Chavez is running uh, for re-election as president uh, in next October, but he has cancer. And a critical question is whether or not he can, uh, uh, can run or whether the cancer is uh, not 
benign. Um, we don't know the answers to those questions. Um, we do know that he will try to play a, a very big role in this next summit of the Americas. And he has always tried to bait the United States, part of the, part of the populism uh, of his uh, policies is uh, an acute nationalism in which he views the United States as, as the enemy of, of his revolution. I think the Obama administration has handled that extremely effectively by not taking the bait, um, by standing back from it um, and not building him up even more uh, by getting into uh, a fight uh, with Chavez. And I think that President uh, Obama will try to uh, maintain that same policy. Well, with that, Bob Pastor, the author of the new book, The North American Idea, out last year, 2011, coming out soon in paperback. Thank you for joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, Rick. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and MusicaQ. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, Dot .org and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Megan Eckhamel and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions.